Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull, and we are so glad you could join us on the website, iTunes, YouTube, uh, or however you're watching or listening to the show today. We appreciate you being with us. Well, today we're going to talk about the multifamily market, and this segment is brought to you by Plum Lending. Visit GetYourPlumLoan.com. They actually do commercial real estate loans and multifamily online. Check them out. And, uh, you know, multifamily has really been for a great ride for, for many, many years. Some people are starting to think that maybe there's a little bit of a slide. So we're calling today's show uh, multifamily sector sliding question mark. So we'll find out today. We're going to look at uh, performance. We're going to look at a lot of the trends and what to expect moving forward. Please work, welcome. My first guest is Jay Parsons. He's vice president of RealPage. He's joining us on the phone today, Jay. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Michael. Now, Jay, you guys have uh, really incorporated a bunch of companies there now. I mean, you were yeah. RealPage, uh, MPF Research, Axiometrics, uh, so you guys have a pretty big uh, conglomerate going on there now. Yeah, you know, data is king, and we're trying to get a lot of it, and hopefully tell uh, to tell uh, tell the industry more insight on what's happening as a result of all that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, and people are curious. You know, we see a lot of cranes. Uh, we see a not, lot of new supply in a lot of the major cities, like where I live in Atlanta. You you can't uh, throw a dead cat without hitting a new apartment complex <laughs> under contract. Uh, I love cats. Uh, sorry about that uh, reference. But uh, so so what's what's going on out there, Jay? What's going on with performance with uh, occupancy rates and uh, rental rates today? Well, you know, Michael, it's an interesting. You know, I, I like the title of this segment on the, with the question mark because we went through a winter period, Q4 and Q1, where uh, demand wasn't particularly strong, uh, rent growth wasn't strong, and there was a lot of supply ramping up, a lot of supply particularly delivering in the winter months uh, that didn't meet their, their, their deadlines to complete earlier in the leasing season. And so uh, we saw some softening. And, but uh, what we were telling folks back then is you got to remember that this isn't the peak leasing season anyway. And so the numbers that you see in Q4 and Q1 really aren't that important in the big picture. So Q2, Q3, that, that's, when, that's when owners and operators make their money or lose their money. And, so, uh, what we're, and the good news is that what we're seeing so far in Q2 is, is actually really impressive. And we've seen some very strong demand, a lot of supply. Uh, but on the whole, um, a lot of demand comes coming in for apartments, um, and uh, and we're seeing some rent growth in certain segments of the market as well. So uh, the, the, the fears of maybe multifamily falling off a cliff at this point perhaps looked uh, pretty premature. And so, Jay, what are you seeing for rental rates? I mean, they were rising pretty quickly for, for many years. Has that slowed down some? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's fair to say we're past the peak. Um, you know, we're not seeing 5% rent growth on a national basis right now. Um, our preliminary numbers uh, are showing us right around 3.5% year-over-year uh, rent growth. But what's really, I think the real story is, is those national figures right now um, are a little bit misleading it's because there's so much bifurcation in the market. What we're seeing is is further, uh, further splits of what we saw last year, which is if you're urban, you're not seeing much rent growth. There's a lot of supply urban right now. If you're suburban, you're seeing more rent growth. If you're class A, not a lot of rent growth. If you're class B, uh, you're doing uh, really well. And so it really depends on, on what what your, what assets you have, and that's going to dictate where you're at right now. Yeah, and that's a good point. I think that's why some people think that in some markets uh, there's good opportunity in B and, and even mm-hmm. C product, because and, and in some of the suburban product, right, where you might still have some rent increases because you're not seeing as much new supply there, right? 
Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And one of the things that we've been telling folks a lot, and I think eventually people will, will, will buy into this, is that the idea that urban offers higher barrier to entries is, isn't true. It hasn't been true for 10 years. Uh, what you're seeing now is uh, uh, very rapid growth in, in apartment development in downtowns across the country. You mentioned Atlanta. Um, and the same is true pretty much in every downtown. It's not just even the big cities. It's these smaller cities as well, uh, places that some folks may not even have heard of where they're building apartments. And what's happening is, um, you know, you're building a new property and you've got 20 other properties that are in lease up or have recently completed that you're also competing with. You go to the suburbs, uh, the suburbs where you want to build, uh, that's where it's challenging to build because you've got nimbyism. You've got people who show up at the city council meeting and says, you know, don't build those apartments in my backyard. Uh, you have restrictive zoning factors. And so uh, the, the, the good suburban areas, not the sprawl, but those good suburbs with the jobs and the incomes, the high home prices, you know, that's the barrier to entry these days. And those are the spots that are doing very, very well. Yeah, and that's interesting. I think uh, some of our listeners may have uh, be like me years ago. Well, you know, urban infill is where you really need to be, but looks like there may be some opportunities in a, in a lot of these suburban markets. And and we're talking with Jay Parsons, VP with RealPage, about the apartment market. And, and Jay, you mentioned that 3.5% rental rate growth kind of average across the country right now. And that's, and that's pretty strong. I mean, that's still very good numbers. So what are you seeing as far as occupancy goes? Is it the same story with uh, A versus B and that in the suburban versus infill? Uh, absolutely. We, we're seeing uh, nationally occupancy rates in the high 95% range. Um, we saw, again, some, some, some deterioration in the, la- in the winter months, but uh, we're, we're likely going to see an improvement in occupancy once Q2 is done and once we get the final May numbers in. Um, but uh, it looks like we're trending back up after a, a, a slow winter. Uh, but again, it, it does kind of depend a little bit where you are. Um, the, the, the new lease-ups in the urban spots, there's still demand there. That's good. Uh, those lease-ups are probably a little more prolonged, so occupancy rates a little bit lower. Um, you get into that Class B segment and into the suburbs, there's less supply. You know, those occupancy rates are very tight, 96% and, and up. There's just not a lot of uh, a, a new product, and the demand for those assets is pretty strong. Okay. And what do you expect moving forward, Jay, when you look at the apartment market for the next year or two related to performance? Yeah, we're expecting more of the same. Um, I I think that as much supply as we're talking about right now, uh, we have to realize that we've not even hit the peak yet. We're going to hit peaks of deliveries nationally the second half of this year. Uh, We'll continue to see uh, some big numbers at least through the first half of 18. And it's probably not going to drop off precipitously from there, but remain elevated. But I think that'll be the the, the peak. Uh, And so as a result of that, and again, the concentration being primarily urban, uh, we'll probably continue to see... uh, um, a, a, a little bit of occupancy decreases on a, na- on a year-over-year basis, uh, probably more supply than we keep up with, uh, at least for 2017, first part of 2018. Um, so you'll see occupancy rates come down a little bit, but again, that'll be primarily urban concentrated. Rent growth, we think, is still going to be pretty good. Um, you know, the Class B market represents the bulk of the sector, and as long as operators are continuing to be guided by the fundamentals, trusting the revenue management systems, not overreacting to trends that don't impact them and in urban sector, in urban areas, that isn't really a factor for Class B suburban. Um, we think they should still carry the market. There's really no reason for for most markets, Class B shouldn't continue to do really well and keep that national rent growth number uh, at least in the low threes. Right. And if you're not in the apartment market, uh, these uh, revenue systems now, the apartment complexes have are adjusting rent sometimes on a daily basis uh, based on lots of information. And RealPage has some of them you can check out at their website. And uh, 
And then uh, multifamily has been really hot on the investment side. I mean, we sell mm-hmm. apartments at our shop in the southeast, uh, headquartered in Atlanta. Apartments are, are really hot. So what are you seeing for trends for cap rates, Jay? Uh, cap rates continue to come down. Um, we've seen uh, our partners at Real Capital Analytics report the average cap rates for April at 5.6%. Uh, that's record lows. And uh, But, you know, the good news is that um, uh, the interest rates also remain low. A lot of talk about interest rates going up a little bit, but those spreads uh, remain really attractive. And, and uh, so 5.6 six isn't maybe as, as, as awful as it may sound on the surface. So what do you expect moving forward? Uh, you know, there is talk of uh, some interest rate hikes uh, this year, next year. What would you guess that uh, cap rates might do in the multifamily world, say, a year or two years from now? Well, I think that's obviously a great question. You know, forecasting interest rates has kind of proven to be a fool's errand a little <laughs> bit. And, and there's certainly a, a, a some relationship to cap rates. So um, they, uh, now let's assume that the political and social environment remains relatively stable, uh, and if that's the case, I think we'll see modest uh, interest rate growth. But remember, you know, even even for all those who are calling for, for bumps in interest rates uh, and in the, the baseline Fed rate, the, no one's expecting a large increase. We're talking about a few bips. And so that's not going to be enough to really move the needle. So I, I expect that, again, as long as the overall economic political environment remains stable, uh, we should continue to see cap rates in the on the mid to high five range. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, and it's a great market. And, uh, Jay, good information as usual. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. If you like more information from Jay, visit realpage.com and stay with us. We'll have more right after this quick message. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Video is powerful. Some of the biggest brands in commercial real estate have trusted us to tell their story. We are Barnes Creative Studios, Atlanta's premier commercial real estate video services. BarnesCreativeStudios.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. And this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. This segment is brought to you by Barnes Creative Studios. Look, if you want a video about your next commercial real estate project, visit BarnesCreativeStudios.com. Well, today we're talking multifamily. We're calling this show uh, Multifamily Sector Sliding with a question mark. You know, the multifamily market has really uh, done so well. And uh, recently I saw an article in Rent Cafe by Nadia. Balant. Uh, we're talking about multifamily and the, the rents and occupancy on suburb versus city. And uh, Nadia is uh, joining us on the phone today. Nadia, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Well, there's been a lot of uh, talk about uh, suburbia being dead you know, and, and that all the uh, new development and all the tenants are all moving to uh, uh, the in town. They're living in the urban environments. Uh, what do you see, Nadia? Well, um, last year's Metro rent reports recurring theme that suburban markets were outpacing urban cores in terms of rent growth. Um, throughout the country, uh, the suburbs were the main driver of rent growth in many metropolitan areas according to rent data from Yardi Matrix. 
But on the other hand, rent rates in downtown cores and CBDs were feeling the effects of the large numbers of new units uh, delivered in the past few years. Um, it's true that the focus has been on downtown cores for a while, um, which offer um, a lifestyle that is will, and will continue to be appealing to um, a certain segment of renters, um, educated young professionals, higher income singles, people for whom proximity to work um, is a priority. But there are also plenty of renters who can't afford or don't want an urban lifestyle. Um, older adults uh, with school-aged children uh, and people of all ages with lower incomes. Um, and one of our most recent analyses of census data reveals that, in fact, more renters choose the suburbs versus cities. Um, from 2011 through 2015, suburban areas were clearly outpacing urban areas in 19 out of the top 20 largest U.S. metros in terms of adding new renting households. And Nadia, some of my listeners and viewers might find that a little interesting because everyone's talking about infill and that's where uh, everyone likes to be. But so what are some of the drivers? So you mentioned uh, school-aged children, uh, some of its affordability, right? Right. From, from the renter's perspective, um, many people prefer the suburbs because rent prices are still lower and the selection of rental properties in the suburbs has gotten better over the last few years, not to mention um, other things that people look for, better schools, more space, um, safer communities, things that renting families uh, tend to put above proximity to work. Okay, and when you look at the country overall and you look at these major cities, how much less do you see that the rents are in the suburban markets than the urban infill? Well, we compared um, average rents in urban versus suburban markets in the 20 largest U.S. metros, and we found that in 18 out of the 20 metros studies uh, studied, uh, renting in suburban areas is cheaper than renting in urban areas. In the top 20 largest metros overall, uh, renters save on average about 11% in rent, or a month's worth of rent in one year, if you put it that way if they rent in the suburbs. Um, the only exceptions of the 20 metros are Phoenix, where there's virtually no price difference, and St. Louis, where it's only slightly cheaper to rent in urban areas. Okay. And what do you see for new supply, Nadia? How is that impacting the uh, cost of these uh, apartment rentals? Um, unlike urban areas, which have been flooded with new apartments over the last few years, much less has been built in the surrounding suburbs. Uh, during this period of time that we studied from 2011 uh, through 2015, in the 20 metros studied, a total of about uh, 300,000 new apartments were built in urban areas versus approximately 180,000 in suburban areas, according to Yardi Matrix construction data. Um, and as of um, 2015, um, this construction um, had jumped um, to 224% uh, from 2011 in the cities versus only 146% in the suburban areas. Well, that's interesting, Nadia. And uh, so what do you see for some sample rents if you picked a, a city or two uh, to see what average rents are today with infill in versus suburban? 
Well, the most significant um, savings would be uh, seen in the nation's most expensive metros. Uh, for example, in the New York metropolitan areas, uh, area, those who rent in suburban areas pay on average $1,600 less per month wow. than they would if they uh, were to rent in the city. In Boston Metro, for example, the savings are about 800 a month. Um, in Chicagoland, um, it costs about $500 a month less um, on average. In the San Francisco Bay Area, about $450 a month less in the suburbs versus the city. Okay. And, you know, multifamily certainly has had uh, great rent growth over the last several years, Nadia. So what do you see for the trends now? Are the increases in rent starting to slow down a little bit? Well, um, according to our latest rent report, which covers 250 U.S. cities, um, 203 cities out of the 250 we surveyed um, saw annual rent growth last month. Um, rents decreased in 13 cities and flatlined in 34 cities. So it's not so much an overall slowdown. Rather, the slowing rents are more, more noticeable in big cities. Um, for instance, rents in San Francisco, New York, Boston, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle, Houston, and the like have slowed down or even decreased uh, since the same time last year, while rent prices in smaller cities and suburban markets are picking up speed. Okay. And Nadia, based on your research there, what do you expect moving forward for rental increases and, uh, you know, in sur suburban versus city? Uh, we expect for the rest of this year um, to see the same trend um, that we've seen um, over the past six months. And as far as the suburbs are concerned, um, the higher um, increase in demand in new renters um, will um, have a say in um, the prices of rent in the suburbs. So the news of the death of suburbia was greatly <laughs> exaggerated. Nadia, where do you see some opportunities then in the uh, multifamily world? Well, the, with this um, steadily rising renting population in suburban areas, that's where we expect to see um, more apartment communities, uh, more transit-oriented development, uh, more attractive suburban downtown um, in the suburbs. Um, to cater to this new wave of renters. Okay. And Nadia, tell us at uh, Rent -a Cafe, what type of um, resources might visitors sign uh, find at your site? Um, we have um, many detailed um, reports on the current state of the rental market, uh, monthly reports, um, all the trends that um, are happening in the market, uh, most of them from a renter's perspective. Um, uh, your listeners can go to our blog at rencafe.com slash blog and browse through um, our collection of articles. We'll do that. Nadia, great uh, article. We'll have a link on our website at CREshow.com. Nadia, thanks for being with us, and thanks for listening on the radio stations and iTunes and YouTube. Stay with us. We'll have more right after this quick break. Are you in commercial real estate brokers? Check out Apto. Created by and for commercial real estate brokers, Apto is the leading web-based platform for managing relationships, properties, listings, deals, and back office. Visit apto.com slash CRE show.
check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit GetValuate.com. That's GetValuate.com. Build out the best all-in-one marketing tool for your brokerage. Learn how you can create marketing materials instantly and streamline your property listings process. Visit buildout.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Uh, this segment is brought to you by Valuate Online Investment Analysis. Check them out. Their site is getvaluate.com. Well, today we're talking about multifamily. The name of our show is Multifamily Sector Sliding as a question. And I'd like to ask that to Jim Costello, who's joining us on Skype. He's senior VP with Real Capital Analytics. And uh, Jim, you guys do a great job of tracking the investment sales market of all property types. And, uh, you know, I think uh, multifamily has been a really hot market. You know, what do you see for a deal volume and, uh, and kind of the appetite for multifamily today? Yeah, thanks for having me here. I tell you, it's uh, it's been interesting. Multi-housing was the sector where deal volume was growing even as others started to slide. Uh, it was the first one into the recovery period that started to see uh, growth. And you know, into 2017, it has uh, given up ground. You know, Deal volume now uh, is down 26% year over year uh, through, uh, through April. And our preliminary numbers through May you know, really show maybe about 40 billion in volume so far for the year. In 2016, the deal volume through May was 60 billion. So you're missing 20 billion in deal volume. And that is something that uh, has people on pins and needles because they're worried about, hey, if deal volume is falling, what happens next? Is this a sign of buyers pulling back and prices are going to fall? And uh, the specter of uh, the downturn after the global financial crisis is on everybody's mind. So why do you think uh, deal volume is slowing down? Well, it, it's there's a couple things. Uh, on the one hand, deal volume is falling, but prices are still high. We haven't seen any change in pricing yet. In fact, in some cases, uh, cap rates have actually compressed, even as deal volume is falling. To me, this says that sellers are pulling back. In fact, at the ULI meetings in, in early May, talking with a number of acquisition professionals there, one of the issues that they were... Uh, complaining about is that they just weren't seeing many high-quality offering packages on the market. Uh, if you are an owner of a nice cash-flowing apartment property at this stage in the cycle, uh, why do you sell it? If you sell, you get some capital back, which is great, but where do you put it? It's not like you can replace the great ongoing yield with a better investment at this point. Now, there's always somebody who needs to sell. You know, some sort of fund uh, comes to an end of life, uh, uh, you know, changes in business models. Uh, so there's still deal volume. But, you know, some of the best deals have already happened so far in this cycle. And sellers, you know, just are not uh, bringing things into the market in the same way they had. Uh, buyers are still hungry for yield. There's still a wall of capital worldwide looking for yielding assets and bonds just can't deliver. But you know, there's only so much they're willing to pay. And there's a bit of a disconnect between what buyers are willing to do and you know, what sellers want for their current assets. 
Yeah, and if yeah. you've seen you've cap seen rates cap. really still decline in multifamily in your most recent sales, then uh, some people may think that uh, that sector is kind of priced to perfection. Well, and what's also interesting is there's a bit of a bifurcation in terms of the kinds of changes in cap rates by property type. The mid-high-rise kind of space, uh, we've seen cap rates really flat since early 2016, uh, really anywhere in the range from uh, 4.9 to 5.1%, you know, kind of around 5. It bumps up and down a bit every every month, whereas the garden apartments – uh, it was at about a six in early 2016, and now it's at around five, five, uh, five, six. So, garden apartments have uh, seen uh, you know prices, uh, uh, cap rates continue to compress, and it's actually seen stronger uh, deal volume in the sense that it's least worse in terms of a decline. You know, where we are seeing the biggest pullback is in the areas where things are the most expensive. In fact, the, the top markets, the top five markets for a year to date in terms of deal volume include places like Baltimore, Orlando, Jacksonville, St. Louis. These are all markets where the average apartment cap rate is closer to a 6%. Now, that, that's four of the top five. The actual top is uh, uh, Orange County, which is a very expensive area, around four and a half for, for cap rates. So it's not – the story doesn't entirely hold. There's still – uh, you know, some investors looking at some of these high price locations, but generally speaking, the high price locations are seeing deal volume pull back the most. Yeah, and it sounds like you're kind of explaining a bid ask gap uh, is maybe part of the problem, or, where sellers are expecting these really low cap rates. Buyers are thinking, "Hey, it's priced to perfection." Um, is, is that one of the, the one of the issues? With volume? Yeah, you know, it's easy for buyers and sellers to come together in an environment of falling interest rates and falling cap rates. Because as a buyer, you can go into a, uh, an acquisition, and even if you know you think that you might be underwriting uh, a little loosely and maybe there's going to be a problem with that, you can uh, kind of paper it over with uh, cap rate compression in the future. At this point, though, you know, nobody really expects interest rates to go any lower. And right. with that, nobody really expects cap rates to go much lower except for some of the secondary markets, some of the other property uh, subtypes for, for apartment. Uh, so you have that situation, and buyers just have to sharpen their pencils more. They can't be as aggressive as they were uh, just a year or two ago. Yeah, and I'm just keying on that, what you just said, that uh, no one expects uh, cap rates to compress uh, much much more. And then you mentioned some, may well, maybe there's some secondary markets or, or maybe is that uh, kind of a B and C product where there still could be some uh, upside on uh, cap rate compression? Yeah, and, and the challenge at this stage in the cycle, though, is that investors are still hungry for yield. They're looking for it wherever they can find it. What you always have to worry about is, you know, am I taking on risks uh, in terms of exit liquidity? that I may not uh, fully appreciate when I'm doing the acquisition. That's the challenge with prices at uh, uh, these cyclic highs. Yeah, and it, uh, this discussion reminds me of one of those famous sayings that we've all heard, buy low and sell high. So if you are a seller, um, it would seem like this would be a great time in the market if we're priced to perfection. Uh, we've got lower interest rates than we expect to have next year and the year after. 
would seemingly be a good time uh, to sell, I guess, uh, but to your point earlier, well, what are you going to do with the money? Where are you going to go? There you go. That's then that's an issue because if you are already in the investment and you've been there for a couple of years, you're, you have some great cash flow in place. Uh, you know, there's going to be some people who make that decision to sell. There's other reasons to sell. Uh, if fun comes to the end of life, uh, there's a number of issues why someone might sell. But for some investors, it, it may just make sense to hold uh, the current cash flow. Well, it's always interesting because you never you never know really what's going to happen in the world, right? In the U.S. and you know what's going to happen uh, in other countries that could impact uh, our economy in the U.S. And you know, uh, I think as a uh, a long term investor, there's certainly a lot of investors that say, "Look, don't wait for the last dollar. Maybe if things are up, it's time to take some money, some chips off the table." So. Let me ask you this. So you and I, we're in the business of interpreting investment analysis and thinking about the future. So we really have to think about, well, what if I do keep this asset or I, I buy this asset? You know, what are potential cap rates, say, three years from now, if we're expecting Fed increase a couple uh, bumps this year? Are we expecting two or three the following year? Uh, what might uh, exit cap rates be two or three years from now? Or as a change, if you will. Yeah, you know, this is a tricky issue. You know, if if I could forecast where interest rates are going to go, <laughs> I'd be in a different business. Uh, but you know, I don't think that the long end of the yield curve. You know, think of the ten-year Treasury. I don't think we're going to go back to something like you know long-term averages. I don't think we're going to go back to something uh, even before the financial crisis. Now, there's some changes underway in the world. You know, the Fed, remember, they only control the short end of the yield curve. They control the Fed funds rate. They don't control the 10-year Treasury. Through the quantitative, quantitative easing programs, they were trying to influence it, you know, trying to buy assets and drive that price down. Now, they, don't, they haven't been doing that of late, but they still have a big uh, book of assets on, on uh, their balance sheet. You know, so if they start to unwind there, maybe that creates some upward pressure on the long end. But at the moment, they're just kind of sitting uh, sitting still. I think the bigger issue is that there is still a wall of capital worldwide in the developing world that wants safe, steady yield from assets in the developed world. And I think that you know that more than the actions of the Fed it will continue to make the environment in the future. Uh, low interest rates and uh, you know generate uh, you know lower cap rates than people in our industry and you know, folks like me and you have been in this for a bit uh, lower than we are used to for most of our careers. So let me translate that. If I'm a listener or a viewer, um, you don't expect cap rate increases in two or three years from now to hikes and cap rates to be that significant. I don't think cap rates would go uh, back to sort of their long-term averages. You know, that's one thing that people like to look at. What's the long-term average? Where are we today? And they make an assumption, we'll just go back to that eventually. I don't think it's going to for simple reasons that, you know, interest rates, you know, the things that drive the long end of the yield curve, the amount of capital looking for that yield, there's still uh, a vast wall of retirement money worldwide that's looking for that safe yield. And I think that it's going to uh, create you know, uh, downward pressure on yields worldwide for all asset classes. 
houses. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think commercial real estate and, of course, apartments are kind of bulked into that uh, has become, uh, you know, a safe investment. And, and it's uh, it's got gotten credibility around the world as, as something to invest in. Well, well, Jim, before you go, what tip would you leave our listeners with uh, related to the multifamily market? Uh, don't panic. You know, when people see this uh, falling deal volume and, you know, they, they start to get a bit worried. Yeah, I think it's just a mar- matter of the market you know, adjusting in, in the current time period, just trying to figure out sort of how much more should we pay. Uh, uh, the other thing I'd watch for is just you know, what's happening with construction. That's the one thing that I think might, in certain select locations, uh, begin to undermine performance. Uh, you know, where I live, for instance, in downtown Brooklyn uh, here in New York, uh, there's a number of towers coming in and it's starting to depress rents. Uh, but you can watch it. I don't think it's forever. There's still demand in some of these areas. It's why they're building some of these projects. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, to add to that, uh, I think watching employment growth and what do you, where do you expect the, the employment to grow? You know, we're here in Atlanta, and I think our, our employment growth is expected to be strong. We're building a lot of apartments, but uh, they seem to be leasing up well. And, Jim, good information as usual. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And if you'd like some more information from Jim, we'll put the, their website link at CREshow.com. And stay with us. We'll have more right after this quick message. Hi, this is Michael Ball. Check out Plum Lending, the $1 to $25 million commercial real estate specialist. Plum offers you speed, certainty, and preferential terms because it's all driven by technology. Visit GetYourPlumLoan.com. That's GetYourPlumLoan.com. Excelligen, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, our topic is is multifamily market sliding. This segment is brought to you by Valuate Online Investment Analysis. Visit GetValuate.com to check it out. Our guest is Ryan Severino. He's Senior Economist with JLL. He's joined us here in Studio One. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Michael. Always a pleasure. Well, Ryan, multifamily, it seems like the biggest question I get from people is, wow, there's there's a lot of new new multifamily that's been built, that's being built. What do you think about supply for multifamily around the country today? You know, it's certainly at an elevated level. And I think uh, based on the research that I've seen, it looks like 2017 is likely to be the high watermark for construction during this cycle. And I think I know you've probably heard me and some others say that for the last couple of years, but it does finally look like this is where we're going to see sort of that big slug of, uh, of development come online. And I think it's, it's making the market more challenging. Uh, the way that I describe it when I'm, I'm out speaking about the market, talking to clients, is, is not to say, hey, the apartment market's dead, don't touch it, uh, stay away. Mm-hmm. But relative to a few years ago, I think what people need to do is they need to do a little more homework, sharpen their pencils, uh, and be cautious because there is a lot under construction right now. And I think you're still seeing some interest. Uh, I think one of the things that, that 
is starting to tamp this down a little bit is it seems like the lender enthusiasm for apartments, uh, at least a lot of the lenders that we've seen in the last three, four, five years, uh, has cooled off a little bit. But uh, I mean, just drive around most major markets and you're going to see properties under construction and cranes moving things around. So I think, again, the focus is on doing your homework. Understand the neighborhood, understand what's under construction, what could potentially go under construction, uh, and really understand the dynamics. Three, four, five years ago, you know, any project you built was probably going to be a home run. You had yeah. the wind at your sails. Uh, I think now you need to be a little bit more discriminating about uh, if you're going to do a construction deal. What does the submarket look like? What does the metro look like? What are the underlying economic and demographic drivers? Because we are further, much further along in the apartment cycle than we were three, four, five years ago. Yeah. And one of the questions I think that uh, my listeners and viewers might have for you, Ryan, is uh, affordability. I mean, is the land prices continue to rise, construction prices continue to rise, you really have to get some really high rents to, to build these new projects. And when I look at some of the rents and I do the math, it's like, all right, don't these tenants need to make like six figures to rent this apartment? How many are there? That's a really good question. And I think you, you really hit the nail on the head because if you look at the supply that's coming online, it's not you know, sort of your average run-of-the-mill apartments. It's a lot of this class A or A-plus, uh, sort of top-of-the-market, world-beater caliber product. And to your point, there, there really is a, a finite number of individuals in a given market that can afford that. I mean, even in the priciest markets in the country, you know, New York and places like that, there isn't this infinite pool of people making, you know, well into the six figures that can afford that. And so I worry about some of those because you're right. In order for, to justify those projects, uh, when you take into account the, the, the rise in land costs, materials costs, construction costs, you have to get to a pretty pricey rent point in order to make those deals work. And my, you know, my thought on this is like, some of these deals, um, they might not end up being complete disasters, but I, I think you're going to see some of them not hit their pro forma underwritten rents, either through concessions or through uh, a decline in the face level asking rents. I think the ones that are sort of um, you know, as I'm fond of saying, you know, they're a little late to the party when all of the you know popular people have gone home and the punch <laughs> has been drunk already. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I feel like some of the the properties that are under construction right now will be some of those late to the to the party kind of uh, apartments, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I think you've got to look at the the future employment growth and how much wages will they be earning? Like, you know, we're in Atlanta, we're expecting a lot more job growth, but it's pretty high income uh, people with, you know, technology jobs and Mercedes just moved their headquarters here. Right. Um, another question I think a, a lot of people have is about the multifamily market. This just had incredible growth. It's just yes. really been awesome. And I think some of that's been the demographics of the millennials. You know, you've had a, a large group of people that are kind of that apartment renting age is that, is that still continuing? How long should we expect that to, to be a boom to multifamily? What's interesting is I feel like we've been talking about millennials seemingly forever. Maybe like even before they were born, I feel like this conversation started. Um, here's the good news. The good news they is... They like it, though. <laughs> as, you know, as long as you compliment them on it, though. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Um, if you think about that generation, it's still a relatively young generation, even though we have been talking about them seemingly you know, forever. Mm -hmm. um, the, the three most common ages in the United States right now are 25, 26, and 24. And that's because the bulk of the millennials were born 
25, 26, and 24 years ago. Even though the generation probably started somewhere, you know, sort of circa 1980, it wasn't really until sort of, you know, kind of the early to mid 90s when you really saw um, the number of births you know, really start to escalate to the point where um, it wasn't on par with some of the, you know, the big baby boomer calendar years, but at least it, it's in that conversation. So you think about that, right? The, so the big crux of this generation is still kind of mid 20s, which puts them squarely in the prime rental cohort. The median age of a first-time home buyer in the United States is still about 31. So just based on the median, that gives them a good five, six, seven years if they're going to think about transitioning. And honestly, in some of the, the really expensive markets, that median age gets pushed out a little bit further because it just takes longer to save to come up with a 20% down payment if you're in a you know, New York metro area or a San Francisco metro area, something like that. So I think you know, we probably have at least that long um, before we have to worry about them transitioning out of, uh, you know, sort of being the dominant renters into uh, into sort of that home ownership transition period. So I don't worry so much about the demand side of the ledger for the apartment market. It's really just a question more on I think the supply side in certain markets. And, and to be fair, you know, supply isn't you know really universal across the country. We it's more of a concentrated phenomenon. You know, some of the big. Texas markets, even New York, places like that, you know, you're seeing significant increase in supply, but it's not as if, you know, all of the top 80 or so markets are, are, are seeing sort of the same level of, uh, of, of supply growth. I think right. it, it clearly varies uh, according to market. Right. And you mentioned homes and the housing market. So what do you expect moving forward there? I mean, it seems like it's a lot harder to, to get a home loan than it used to be in the, the go-go days of the, of the breath test. Uh, you have some talk of uh, interest deductions maybe being uh, pulled for uh, second homes, which could impact uh, home values. Uh, what do you expect moving forward for the housing market and its impact on multifamily? You know, I think the underpinnings of the for sale market are still pretty strong. I think the big thing um, that's been holding the market back, at least in terms of volume, is just there's not enough supply out there. And I think some of this is due to the fact that the apartment market had such a good run for such a long period of time. Um, I think there were a lot of lenders that got and investors that got burned pretty badly with for sale housing in the last cycle. And, that, and a lot of the small builders are gone that built homes. Yeah, and they just, <laughs> they they just backed out. away from the yeah. industry. Yeah. And, and rightfully so, I get it. Yeah. You stick your hand in the oven, you get burned, you're a little reticent to stick it back in the second time. Um, but I think what you're seeing now is a lot of the, the, the real serious appreciation that we're seeing in, in, in for sale housing, which is pretty universal across the country, um, is owed to basically a supply-demand imbalance. And, and, and not so much at the high end. I, I'm not so worried about you know, million-plus homes you know, you know, missing a pool of demand or something like that. It's really sort of more transitional housing, entry level to, to above entry level, where if you look at the inventory levels in some respects, they're lower than they were during the housing bubble. And so it's one of the reasons you're seeing this fairly significant appreciation. Uh, you know, I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see more supply growth there. I'd like to see more um, interest on the part of the developers and interest on the part of the lenders. Um, but I think it's been, I think it's been, it's been a challenge for them, no doubt. And this appreciation in single-family home values, is, is that really uh, a benefit for the multifamily investors because their tenants are going to stay tenants longer? I think so. I think, yeah. it, you know, it, the way that I look at the housing market is, it, you know, there are two pools of demand. There, mm -hmm. there tend to be younger people like we were talking about, sort of the prime rental cohort, kind of 20 to 30-year-olds, tend to not be homeowners, tend to be renters. 
above that median home ownership age, 31, primarily they tend to be owners, not, not renters. So you go from being renters at a younger age to owners, there's a very strong positive correlation between age and home ownership. But around that transition period, there is definitely a pool of people that make that calculus, that they decide, you know, do we stay renting versus uh, transitioning to being homeowners? And I think all things equal, the more unaffordable it is and the harder it is to find a house that you would actually wish to purchase because of limited inventory to actually make that transition, then what happens is it ends up elongating that period of time uh, where you see some people staying in their, in their uh, apartments longer than they otherwise would. So net-net, I think that tends to be uh, a benefit for, for apartment landlords because it probably keeps their tenancy a little more, a little stickier, a little more resilient than it would otherwise be. Yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting the stigma is gone. I think if I told you I was renting a nice apartment in Atlanta, you'd say, oh, good for you. You're not going to have to cut the grass this weekend, right? right? You wouldn't say, oh, Mike, I'll feel sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> you must not be able to afford a home. Um, That's so, a good thing, too, though, right? Because I think, yeah. you know, it, we're one of the few countries in the world where I think there is that strong perception that way, that stigma associated with it. There, there are a couple others. I won't throw them under the bus. But if you go to, to Europe, a lot of countries in Europe, there isn't that perception. And, and there isn't this sort of one monolithic European uh, you know, sort of housing market. But in a lot of countries in Europe, more people rent than own because there isn't that stigma associated with it. And I, and I think that's a good thing. I think we getting past that stigma in the U.S. and letting people choose, you know, sort of their, their mode of dwelling, whether it's renting or owning, it should just be a function of, you know, what suits them well, yeah. not a function of, um, you know, sort of social stigmatization or anything like that. Yeah, some people might not want to cut the grass. Maybe just call the landlord when the refrigerator <laughs> breaks, right? So, Ryan, before you go, where are some opportunities for listeners and viewers related to multifamily today? You know, I love everything that's below the institutional radar in multifamily. So class, let's say, B plus to B, um, and even further below that. I think um, I look at the market and I see inventory declining over time. I see demand not just steady but increasing. Um, I see price points for a lot of these assets that you know more sophisticated, really competitive institutional investors are not going to touch because it's just not going to move the needle on their portfolio at all. Um, you got to do your homework on these deals. They're not all layups. You really have to. I think the capex part of it really is important because some of these are older assets that were built in the 70s and the 80s and they've been neglected for a little while. But I think you know, if, if you really do your homework and you avoid the ones where there's just going to be this kind of money pit caliber CapEx sinkhole, I think there are attractive opportunities there, not just to buy, I think, at attractive cap rates and, and have a stable tenant base where, where the cash flow looks good, but also to do what I'll call sort of smart remodeling or remediation, where you can do things at the margin um, that don't cost a lot of money, but where you can actually generate some rent increase and get good bang for your buck, I still think there are a lot of opportunities out there because uh, if you go back and you look at the last 36 years of data, there's only been one calendar year in the last 36 years where Class BC apartments had a calendar year rent decline. So the stigma or, or, or the knock on it is that you can't, you can't grow rents as quickly as you can in Class A, but again, if, if you do your homework, you can actually find properties where there, uh, there's some upside there if you're, you're smart about you know, doing renovations that aren't, aren't you know, costing you a ton of money and you get a lot of bang for your buck there. So I'm still really enthusiastic about, about Class BC apartments in the US. Well, that's a good tip. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there for better management. I mean, you think about Class A management companies, they're all pretty good and 
there's not a whole lot to right. do differently, really. But when you start getting into B and C, your management skills can really make a difference. There are some assets, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you firsthand, that I've seen where, um, this is going to sound like a trope, but true story. Um, the asset was owned by a widow. It was her, her husband who had it for the longest time. She inherited it after his death. Wasn't doing very much, at, if anything, with it. Was actually using a couple of the units as basically her own sort of self-storage units or property <laughs> self-storage units. And yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, that's thousands of dollars a month that you've taken offline from revenue and NOI. Um, it's being totally mismanaged. And I think you know, an investor comes in and, and sees opportunities like that. Those are the ones, again, where you kind of have to do your homework and understand what's going on. But I do think there are opportunities there for things like better management uh, and better CapEx you know, planning and things like that. I, I, yeah, I'm trying not to, to overstate it, but uh, I'm still very uh, bullish on the outlook for, for BC apartments, not just until the next recession, but I think even medium to long term in the U.S. Yeah. Well, that's where I started with selling apartments You know, when I was 19 years old. And by the time I was 22, I was selling apartments, uh, commission-only broker. And I had a management background of turning apartments. So, you know, it, it's like my head of the apartment group now I have. You know, he, he he's turned around apartments. And so when you can come in and kind of see opportunities, I think that is a great opportunity to buy BNC. And as usual, great information, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us out there on the radio stations, iTunes, YouTube. Hey, please comment. Please share on Facebook, LinkedIn. Connect with us. Thanks for being with us. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions. Excelligent, building data everywhere. Plum Lending, online commercial real estate loans. Get Valuate, online investment analysis, build out. The marketing tool for your brokerage. And Barnes Creative Studios, commercial real estate video production.